age will be remembered for the accomplishments of thousands of American thinkers, inventors, entrepreneurs, writers, and promoters of social justice. But the Gilded Age will not be remembered for its presidents. The presidency was at an all-time low in power and influence, and the Congress was rife with corruption. State and city leaders shared in the graft, and the public was kept largely unaware. Much like in the colonial days, Americans were not taking their orders from the top. Rather, they were building a new society from its foundation. Any casual observer of U.S. history can quickly name off Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, and George Washington. But if one were to mention Rutherford B. Hayes... Chester Arthur or James Garfield to a classroom or to a passerby in the street, often they'd be met with a blank stare. Welcome to Print the Legend, a podcast for AP U.S. history students where we unpack the stories that made up America, and the stories that America made up. In today's part four in a four-part series of The Gilded Age, we will unpack politics during this time period and its impact on urbanization and the cities. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and I'm so glad you're taking time out of your day to learn right alongside with me. Ulysses S. Grant was a war hero, but he was unprepared for public office. In fact, he never held a single office prior to the presidency and was totally naive about the dirty workings of Washington. Relying heavily on advice from his insiders who were stealing public money, the Treasury Department, among many others, were involved in the Credit Mobilier scandal, which defrauded the American public of common land. His successor, Rutherford B. Hayes, himself had tremendous integrity, but his presidency was weakened by the means of his election. After the electoral votes were counted, his opponent Samuel Tilden already claimed a majority of the popular vote and needed just one electoral vote to win. Sound familiar? Hayes needed 20, and precisely 20 electoral votes were in dispute because the state submitted double returns, one proclaiming Hayes the victor the other Tilden. A Republican-biased electoral commission awarded all 20 electoral votes to Republican Hayes, who won just by one electoral vote. Shortly after, James Garfield succeeded Hayes to the presidency, but only four months into his presidency, an assassin's bullet met him. The killer was so upset with Garfield for overlooking him for a political job that he shot the president in cold blood on the platform of a train station. Vice President Chester Arthur stepped up to the plate, and although his political history was largely composed of appointments of friends, 
The tragedy that befell his predecessor led him to believe that the system had gone totally corrupt. Arthur signed into law the Pendleton Civil Service Act, which opened many jobs to competitive examination rather than political connections. The spoil system, for all intents and purposes, was over. This was also an era of congressional supremacy. The Republican Party dominated the presidency and Congress for most of these years. Both houses of Congress were full of representatives that were owned by big business. The most. Money, oil, steel, and trains regulated the campaigns. The big money brought into the government by these huge donors, well, they still exist in campaigns today. A small network of the few powerful rich gaining access to the public treasury allowed the 20th century to be beset by business and politics intertwined. Rapid urbanization gave way to big politics. Politicians no longer had to traverse immense landscapes to get their message across. They could campaign at numerous stops within one single city. The speed at which these American cities expanded was shocking. Get this, about one-sixth of the American population lived in urban areas in 1860. By 1900, that ratio grew to one-third. In just 40 years, the urban population increased four times, while the rural population doubled. In 1900, an American was 20 times more likely to move from the farm to the city than vice versa. The 1920 census declared that for the first time, a majority of Americans lived in the city, which gave way to political bosses that lived right alongside them. Give my regards to Broadway, remember me to Herald Square. Tell all the gang at 42nd Street that I will soon be there. Whisper of how I'm yearning. To cope with these urban problems, government officials had limited resources and personnel. Democracy did not flourish in this environment. To bring order out of chaos of the nation's cities, many political bosses emerged who did not shrink from corrupt deals if they could increase their own power basis. The people and institutions were called political machines. Personal politics can at once seem simple and complex. To maintain power, a political boss, this was the leader of a political machine, had to keep their constituents happy. Most political bosses appealed to the newest, most desperate part of the growing urban population, immigrants. Individuals who were leaders in local neighborhoods were even sometimes rewarded with city jobs in return for their loyalty. Bosses knew they also had to placate big business and did so by rewarding them with lucrative contracts for construction of factories or public works. All of these activities mentioned so far seem at least semi-legitimate. But the problem was that many political machines broke their own laws to suit their purposes. 
For example, as contracts were awarded to legal business entities, they were likewise awarded to illegal gambling and prostitution rings. Often profits from these unlawful enterprises lined the pockets of city officials. Public tax money and bribes from the business sector increased the bank accounts of these leaders. But perhaps the most notorious political boss of the age was William Boss Tweed of New York's Tammany Hall. Twelve years, Tweed ruled New York. He gave generously to the poor. He authorized the handouts of Christmas turkeys and winter coal to prospective supporters, even at times dressing up and walking the streets of Manhattan as Santa Claus. In the process, he fleeced the public out of millions of taxpayer dollars, which went into the coffers of Tweed and his associates. But much of Tweed's corruption was brought to the attention of the public by political cartoonist Thomas Nast. Nast's pictures were worth more than words as many illiterate and semi-illiterate immigrants in New York were exposed to Tweed's craft. A zealous attorney named Samuel Tilden convicted Tweed and his rule came to an end. Come, 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 let us come. Everybody's doing it now. People can reach their destinations faster and faster because of new methods of mass transit. Cable cars were introduced in San Francisco, elevated trains in Chicago, subways in Boston, and of course middle-class Americans could now afford to live farther away from Manhattan because of bridges such as the Brooklyn Bridge, improving abilities to go into the boroughs of Queens and Brooklyn. The modern American city was truly born in the Gilded Age. The bright lights, the tall buildings, the material goods, and the fast pace of urban life emerged as America moved into the 20th century. But not all that glitters is gold. Ships would make their way past the Statue of Liberty. On their way to Ellis Island, immigrants would come from all over the world searching for prosperity or arriving out of despair. Immigration is nothing new to America, but however, during this time period, America reached its peak immigration from 1880 to 1920. The so-called old immigration brought thousands of Irish and German people to the New World. And most immigrant groups that had formerly come to America by choice seemed distinct, but in fact, many had similarities. Most had come from Northern and Western Europe up until this time, and most had some experience with the representative democracy and the culture of Western and Northern Europeans. Most were Protestant and were literate, and most of them possessed a fair degree of wealth. 
These new groups of immigrants arriving by the boatload in the Gilded Age were Greeks, Italians, Serbs, Russians, and Croats. A vast majority were Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, and however, due to an increased persecution of Jews in Eastern Europe, many Jewish immigrants sought freedom from torment. Lights, trolleys, skyscrapers, romance, and action. These are among the first few words that enter the minds of now immigrant Americans contemplating a new urban lifestyle in the country. But once they arrived on the shores, they were met with slum, crime, overcrowding, pollution, and disease. Much of the urban poor, including a majority of incoming immigrants, lived in tenement housing. If the skyscraper was the jewel of the American city, the tenement was its boil. In 1878, a publication offered $500 to the architect who could provide the best design for mass urban housing. James E. Ware won the contest with his plan for a dumbbell tenement. The structure was thinner in the center than on its extremes, which allowed light to enter the building no matter how tightly packed these tenements may be. Unfortunately, these vents were often filled with garbage, and the air that managed to penetrate also allowed a fire to spread much more rapidly. So too, disease. Cholera and yellow fever and tuberculosis were huge killers in New York City at the turn of the century. And it doesn't stop there. Despite trash being piled up, sewage pipes backing up, poverty bred crime. People were desperate they resorted to theft or violence to put food on the table. And such vices like gambling, prostitution, and alcoholism were widespread. The glamour of the American city was not so glamorous. And that concludes our four-part series of The Gilded Age. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi. And next time on Print the Legend, we'll turn our eyes to the West. It's hard to believe that the East and the West are two regions of the same country. The vast urban centers on the East Coast looked nothing like the areas west of the Rocky Mountains. The West was an emerging patchwork of homestead farmers, miners, and cattle ranchers, but that did not stop the conflict between whites and Native Americans. Part one of our three-part series of the Wild Wild West, The Closing of the Frontier, next on Print the Legend, the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. We'll see you next time. I'm Mr. Nasosi, and thank you for joining us.